this is Julia Torres, and I am here with Luz Herrera and Carla Espana. And we are going to be talking about En Comunidad, which is their book that it was recently published with Heinemann Publications. We are also going to talk about all the things, decolonization. We're going to talk about translanguaging. We're going to talk about bilingual instruction. And if you are an English-speaking teacher, how you can best serve your bilingual Latinx students. So with that preamble, I'm going to turn it over to Luz to introduce herself and then Carla, and then we'll get started. Thank you so much. Um, my name is Luz Herrera, and I'm faculty in the School of Education, Penn School of Education uh, and Human Development at California State University of Fresno. And um, I'm just so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having us, Julia. Thank you for being here. I'm very excited to have you. Um, I know that we're going to have the chance to meet in person again at some point, and I look forward to that day because I'm such a fan of your work and your presence in the field and your learning and how you share it with so many of us. Carla, can you tell us a little bit about where you work and how you come to this space? Hi, everyone. Hola, mi gente. Escuchando. We are so excited to be here. I am from Chile, and I came to New York when I was very young. And so I am still in New York and grew up in New York and have been a New York-based educator, but definitely uh, working in the fields of bilingual education, critical literacies, and um, doing some workshops with uh, throughout with the Educator Collaborative. But a lot of my work has taken me in teacher education programs after being a middle school teacher in New York. I am now at Bank Street Graduate School of Education in New York in their bilingual TESOL program. So exciting that we get to learn from the best. So um, thank you so much for joining the Book Love podcast. This podcast is meant to be something that will support folks who have just won Book Love Foundation grants. So we were able to give away about 68 um, classroom libraries this year. So it was 86,000 that was raised through the Book Love Foundation, right? So the next step is making sure that folks understand the importance of changing the way we have looked at classroom libraries and at independent reading and that's why I'm so excited to talk to both of you, because there are many students that I teach who are bilingual. Most of them are bilingual Spanish and English speakers, but a lot of them speak Amharic, they speak Arabic, they speak French, and they're from African countries. So I have a lot of bilingual and even tri and quadrilingual students. So this work is really important for me as well. Um, growing up bilingual as well, it's something that is, that I often went back and forth between, you know, entre dos mundos, como mm -hmm. dije en el libro. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm really excited to hear what you have to say, both of you. We'll kind of just, I'll open it up to either one of you to take the question, or you can both speak to the questions as we go through them. The first one that I really want to talk about is this idea of critical bilingual literacy. It shows up in the book multiple times, and this might be terminology that folks are not familiar with but I'm excited about the way that you dive into it in the book. So could you, either of you or both, speak a little bit about critical bilingual literacies? Sure, um, I can talk about the first two guiding principles and maybe Carla can join me for the second, uh, for the second half. Um, so we, we propose four guiding principles that can help um, us to develop these critical bilingual literacies. And the first one is to constantly self-reflect. 
So that is doing the work to unpack our own ideas about language, about identity, about culture, um, and think about the ways that, you know, we may be um, uh, promoting some, you know, think about the ways that we may be causing harm or think about the ways that we can evolve and really identify the areas where we have been privileged um, and the areas that we've been disadvantaged, right? And really uh, reflect on those. The second principle is practicing a pedagogy that focuses on unlearning, right? So um, a lot of the times we know that school is a place where a lot of injustices can happen, right? Uh, where inequalities are reproduced. And so we see this all of the time, for instance, with uh, linguistic uh, hierarchies or language hierarchies. And how can we unlearn those notions that are really passed down from colonization and um, just racism in the schooling, in schools in general. And um, so really focusing on unlearning of those harmful um, ideas and narratives. Uh, when we were thinking about what to call our approach, and we we wanted to have the term critical there, um, noticing, and then we'll talk a little bit more about bilingual literacies too later, but um, critical of what, right? Like, it's kind of like when you think of Paulo Freire, like, well, you're denouncing something, but you're, you're denouncing something, and then you also have to announce what's the alternative. And so for us, it was about making sure that we had a, a clear analysis of linguistic practices, literacies, and power. And that for us meant that we had to be very critical about how central white mainstream English has been in the education of uh, bilingual and multilingual students and how it's been set as the norm and how we want to decenter that kind of practice of making sure that children, you know, their, their language practices somehow, um, we want to get them to assimilate and approximate um, whiteness. And instead, we wanted to make sure that we include this kind of analysis where we notice the issues of power so that we can move towards the point of celebration of bilingual Latinx linguistic practices, which is our fourth um, principle. But we can't do that without having this clear analysis of what has been centered for so long. And that's why for us that that term of making sure we, we center the actual students bilingual multilingual practices, um, especially from language minoritized populations, um, and include that kind of analysis or else we're, we're missing the big picture, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. And this has global implications, right? Because um, we know that in many countries where Spanish is the language of the colonizer, mm -hmm. there are indigenous populations that have become linguistic minorities. Right. So can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of tracing that impact of colonization and that process of decolonizing the mind with regard to linguistic minorities with regard to power and how the, there's that relationship between power and language. Sure, so I can start with that. Um, so first, it was really central for us to do a little bit of that historical unpacking. Um, and so for us, I know in the book, we wanted to make sure we had these practical examples of lesson sequences for teachers. And so it wouldn't be this, um, let's name some terminology or let's um, be clear about what the problem is in our educating of uh, bilingual Latinx children, uh, we, we know that that's not enough. We both come from, we, I mean, Luce and I met in a graduate program. Um, so in our doctoral studies, we were very familiar with a lot of um, the work on theory and a lot of readings that we did too, where we were like, it's staying purely in the theoretical level. And for us, it's like, we have to do the unpacking of what does it mean in our classrooms, right? And so for us, that meant that 
in a lot of the sequences for the lessons in the books. In the book, we're talking about the central role of considering the work of analyzing policies and practices that have this historical legacy. And so it's not just about me saying, oh, wow, you know, I noticed that um, there's something wrong with the testing policy in the school with this population or the way they are assessed in monolingual English. Oh, wow, that's, that's not enough to just stay there in the present moment. It's like identify something that's not going well right now and then point to what has been its historical legacy, whether it could we could think about testing, we could think about um, discipline policies, right? The work of Monique Morris has like changed my life in thinking about that and in, in thinking about language policies or things that might not even be called language policies, but they end up being de facto language policies, right? Whether that's testing, tracking, um, having a, 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 this with your tracking, like a gifted and talented class and the resources go there and certain opportunities go there and certain children get to go there and not the rest. Um, and so for us, it became really clear that we first as educators and authors have to do that work of understanding those connections to historical legacies that present moments of uh, racial injustice, of linguistic injustice might have. So we make those connections, one. Two, how do we translate that to the classroom? And that was really um, key for us because we had to go back and say, what have been the lessons we've been doing with middle grade, with upper grades, with elementary school students in our in our school visits, and then also with our own graduate programs. Like Luz has done tremendous work with her teacher residency program and really thinking about how to make those practical examples um, accessible for teachers at all levels. That's so important because you know, the experience level, a lot of veteran teachers just think they have it all figured out. And many of the tricks that people learn to be able to engage students, that's not the same thing I have found as empowering students to own their learning so that they're not dependent learners, which is why I love the practical strategies in the book, because it does work for folks who have experience, but then also newer teachers who get bogged down with the theoretical, but need to be able to apply the practical to what they're just doing every day, which is beautiful. Louis, do you have anything to add about decolonizing the mind or the importance of just like, you know, that counter narrative? We've got a very harmful narrative that is about what it means to be bilingual in our school system. And then we have very intentional moves we have to make to counter that harmful narrative. Do you have anything that you can add about that? Well, I think Carla, you know, Carla really laid it out really well um, already. And um, I did want to mention that I think, well, a lot of us, like I am a, I am an immigrant. I was born in Mexico and I moved to California when I was a little girl. And a lot of us who are immigrants, um, you know, have this experience where we're kind of not only dealing with the colonization that we, you know, experienced from our home countries or in our home countries, right? We can't, I can't really trace my ancestors really that far back because there's very little record keeping in Mexico, right? And then being in this country and going through schooling, you know, it's kind of like a... I don't know. I don't know what the term is or if it's even a really well thought out, but it's kind of like a double kind of colonization, right, that you're experiencing mm -hmm. in many ways. I, you know, for us, it's really important for students to be able to, to learn their own history, to do their own research, not to take the, what we say at face value, but really learn how to discern for themselves um, and, and take those actions in their own hands 
So uh, that's why we wanted to create those opportunities throughout the book for students to be able to do the work and really engage with the texts and, and research and look at uh, you know the variety of narratives that are out there and thinking critically about all of these. So I, I just wanted to add that. I think that's powerful, very powerful and important because among bilingual Latinx students, you're gonna have first generation, second generation, third generation. You're gonna have folks who have a multiplicity of experiences. So it's important, as you say in the book, to get to know your students and their histories, but for them also to get to know their histories. There's so many students that I have here in Denver who do not know the really important role that Mexican American immigrants and Chicano Americans really like worked hard in Denver to try to fight for rights during a certain time that kind of overlapped with the movements that were in the 60s and early 70s. But there are a lot of folks who didn't know that. And then when we were demanding that we have Chicano studies and um, African-American studies or black studies in the school, we had that for like two years. And then they took it away because mm -hmm. they decided that it wasn't something that was essential. It was an elective. And so, yeah. So, you know, this reclaiming of history is so important for our students. Thank you so much for adding that. And that really is an important thing that, you know, I always see in my classrooms when I ask teachers, my pre-service my pre teachers to, to think about, and, and we both do this, Carla and I do this with our pre-service teachers. Uh, we, we ask them to think about their literacies, their identities, their language stories. And a lot of them share how, you know, they have had grandparents uh, who spoke, you know, another language. Um, in many cases, this, was, this is Spanish but they didn't teach it to their kids. And so they didn't learn it from their parents because they wanted to keep their kids from, you know, from heartbreak because they were so discriminated against for speaking and punished for speaking their home language at school or at recess. Um, and so, you know, that trauma uh, led to a lot of people, you know, like you say, Julia, a second generation um, not knowing their home languages because of this, because their parents or grandparents were trying to protect them. You know, as you mentioned, a lot of the, the Chicano, the Chicanx uh, movement is really, was really led by um, the struggle for civil rights that black people led. So we're, you know, we, we have to know that history and we have to recognize the importance of the contributions uh, of black people in this country. And that's one of the reasons why I love the title and Comunidad, because we are a community. And this really so much of this work has to be about ways that we can come together in community versus letting white supremacy or letting aspects of white culture turn us against each other or pull from each other. And one of the things that I talk about a lot with teachers is how I think this is falling away, I hope but there was a very derogatory practice where people would refer to our bilingual Latinx students as monolinguals, just label them monolinguals. Well, if you are monolingual, but you speak English, you have that label too. So what are you doing calling students monolinguals? Mm -hmm. They're not monolingual, they're emerging bilingual or maybe trilingual. You've got one language and it's English. So, you know, I really encourage folks to decenter whiteness and decenter English, and your book does that as well. And I love going back to that idea about literacy versus literacies. I'd love for us to talk just a moment about how that plays in to the understanding of how our students actually are 
bilingual and they're functioning in multiple literacies all the time. Yeah, and I think that's that that comes to the point that we for us um, it has been really important to use a terminology across the book and in our practice of students engaging in multiple literacies because it starts with what they all already engage when engage in in their homes, in their communities. So like thinking back when, when I grew up, I was surrounded by a lot of music. Um, we were very active in our church growing up and I was constantly translating um, for years, like four to six years, <laughs> from like Tuesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you name it for like my pastor who was all about the long sermons. Um, and he spoke in features of Spanish from Dominican Republic, which is like very fast. And I learned so much and I've expanded my own repertoire of Spanish because I have my limited view of Spanish from Chile. And um, so I had all these multiple literacies from like um, translation of translating text to interpreting um, different texts and, and poetry and song. And I was a part of a folklore group in Chile. And so all of that was a part of just me growing up and that's just my experience and then getting to know my own students experiences and then the grad students I taught so for us in Luz we had these conversations like it's really important that we don't just limit it to the traditional definitions of what it means to read what it means to write what it means to like engage in literacy or have literacy like for us that's really problematic so we wanted to expand it um I credit a lot I'm always shouting out Professor Ernest Morell who had a big big role in my um um scholarly growth as well as like my professors at all these like Puerto Rican women who are just so influential in my life who helped me see this bigger picture of community literacies and family literacies. And then that's why we also use the language of saying that students, bilingual multilingual students engage in um, language practices or they language, so language as an action, right? or that they pull from features of many languages. We don't want to be bound by languages as the term, you know, as this um, term that's um, very static. And instead we say that we're culture. So I pull from, because I grew up in New York City, I came from Chile at a very young age, but my my entire like childhood was surrounded by friends from, um, Mexico and Central America and Caribbean. And then when I became a teacher, it was mostly Dominican students in, in, in Harlem, um, in West Harlem. So it meant that my Spanish, I use features of very different kinds of Spanish in my teaching. And mm-hmm. being open to that and, and saying that that's valid and not that only one kind of Spanish like from Spain would be the correct one. So for us, mm-hmm. that's all under the, the conversation of terminology. Well, how was it like for you, Luz, considering um, those terms and where, how did you get connected to those terms in your own journey? So for me, growing up, um, I sort of noticed that um, in my household, we didn't have a whole lot of books. Um, And, you know, I thought for a moment before I really started really learning, I thought, you know, maybe like, oh, well, that I had some sort of, you know, that I was surprised away, but then I thought about the ways that my mom used to tell us stories all the time. Siempre nos contaba cuentos. And we love, we love to hear her stories, her storytelling. And so it's, it's important to, for us, it was important to sort of recognize the ways that many people do literacy, right? Or, and, and recognize these multiple literacy practices because, um, you know, some of my pre-service teachers have identified certain you know, as well, thinking that maybe that they um, were not in the systems, but then discovering that, well, yeah, your, your family has a really rich oral tradition, you know, oral uh, storytelling tradition. 
that is part of your literacy tradition as well. And so um, it was important for us to name that in the book and tell our stories and just so that we can continue to expand what it means, what literacies um, can be, yes. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's so important primarily because when we're pushing books, just physical books, mm -hmm. um, when we're pushing those constantly, I think we do send a message to our students that the other literacies that you have in your life are not valid or not important or yeah. worthy of academic study. And that mm -hmm. somehow you are less of a student if yeah. you if some of your literacies include song lyrics or cuentos that you were told from mm -hmm. your family, oral storytelling tradition, those types of things. Which leads me to the idea of um, translanguaging was so important because we were able to read, for example, the poet X. We were able to talk about slang terms and how lots of different Spanish from different places has different slang terms. And some places are mostly slang terms. And then you have Portuguese, which some people say is like Latinx adjacent, which is like a complete, it's connected to Spanish, but so different as well. So when we think about this idea of translanguaging, it looks different for a lot of folks, but for me, it looks like speaking three or four languages all day, every day, and going back and forth between parts of all of them. So I would love to hear a little bit more about translanguaging as pedagogy and practice, as you mention it in the book. I can start. Um, this is Bruce. <laughs> um, translanguaging for us is the way we do language, as, as you mentioned, Julia. And, and same for me. I, um, I'm trilingual, so I, I usually most you know, two, two languages, Spanish and English, throughout the day. Um, but also a variety of English, right, throughout the day, depending on where I'm at. We use, uh, we love to use Ofelia Garcia and Camila Leiva's definition of translanguaging which um, is, is seen as a pedagogy, as you say, a theoretical framework, right? Um, and a, as a means for social justice. So in the classroom, we can look at it as a way that we, we can create spaces to, you know, to welcome and encourage students to use their entire linguistic repertoire to engage um, to amplify, you know, their voices. Uh, we can see it as a, you know, as a need for social justice because it creates spaces for students to, you know, equally or more equally participate um, and have access to the content. And Carla, what can you add about translanguaging and just the importance if you are a language arts teacher or a literacy educator and you only speak English? Um, how can you support students who are translanguaging naturally all the time? So that's um, that's the work I do every day. I'm so excited you asked that because that's so important that this is for everyone. So I, I first, um, and this is how we started the book, is to un have an understanding that the first thing teachers can do if you're monolingual uh, teacher, which is most of the case teaching um, bilingual or multilingual Latinx children, um, is really consider your own first, what is your understanding of students' languaging practices? And how can translanguaging be a, a better framework compared to those that might look at language practices as very isolated or separate? And so for translanguaging, the way I encourage teachers to first unpack that for themselves is to consider that as what 
as Lou said, as what children are already engaging in. And that means that that's one going to affect the way I, for example, might plan my read alouds. And so instead of it being very teacher centered, which unfortunately sometimes that happens, um, we encourage in, in the book, we give examples and we give a template for a guide for, for planning these where you can consider students to actually have more participation and not so, be so teacher centered. But if you know that students are translanguaging in their lives, why not engage that in the reading in community um, moments. So that means students will read along with you. That means students can engage their full language repertoires as they have conversations with each other. As you create charts, you can have multilingual charts. We love showing pictures from the CUNY NYSEB, that's C-U-N-Y-N-Y-S-I-E-B. That's the New York State Initiative on Emergent Bilinguals with CUNY. We love showing their um, pictures from their uh, resources on the translanguaging guide where they have these beautiful multilingual word charts. Great. And so in our book, we talk about ways that you can use that and that enhances your um, community and your instruction. So it's in conversation. It's in processing text for reading comprehension. It's in students' small group. Uh, work. It's also whole class when you do your multilingual word charts and conversations, but also what about writing? Like I think a lot about my own practices when I taught sixth grade in a bilingual dual language setting, as well as transitional um, different models that I taught. Uh, it's like the did we always have students writing celebrated in English when it was an, an English writing product at the end? Like what was what went in bulletin boards? What gets celebrated? And thankfully, I was in a school with these like amazing black women who were brilliant leaders in my in my district and in my building who encouraged me. They said, you know, España, do what works. And whenever I asked for any professional development support, like they like said yes to whatever I needed to learn. And they were encouraging the use of um, students' process work um, across, displayed across mm -hmm. the building and the classroom, as opposed to just, let's just celebrate writing in English. So look at translanguaging and writing, look at translanguaging and students' um, conversations. I think that that sends a powerful message as opposed to, which was very common, saying, um, we, will, we will allow you, I mean, think about this language, we will allow you to use your home language or your first language, they might use those terms, make sure you translate everything to English or it's, it's you use it as a way to get to English. Like that's assimilationist, right? And that's very different than what we're calling for in this book. It's like start by unpacking your own biases, your own assumptions on, on language learning and language, and then move to saying, how can I engage students um, entire being like we're talking about identities we're talking about their children are whole beings and how dare us how dare we leave a whole part of their identities out because we want to get them to approximate whiteness that is yeah. an urgent concern that we have and that is why this book was very specific to this population and, and with these practices um, because we see the damage that that continues um, to be done it's so harmful for children it's very empowering, this text. It is a very validating teacher book, just so you know. And I also love what you just said because it connects beautifully to our final piece, which is about intersectionality. A lot of teachers understand the idea of intersectionality as an applied practice. Um, some people understand it as a theory, but few people understand it as both in a way where it's integrated into their teaching. So if you're a newer teacher 
who doesn't fully understand the idea of intersectionality and how important that is when we are validating our students and not expecting for them to assimilate to our ideas of what scholarship should look like or what, as you mentioned, the product, the final product should look like. I would love to hear from both of you about that connection between intersectionality as a practice and theory and then that intersection there. Um, so I can start. And the first thing that we want to mention and remind people is that um, intersectionality was originally coined by Kimberly Crenshaw uh, to examine the particular ways that Black women were uh, and continue to be negatively impacted um, in the justice system. So it's really important that we that we know that history and that we don't take away from that and we, uh, we center uh, Black women uh, when we speak about intersectionality. Um, I think for education, you know, it has provided a way for, for all of us to examine the ways that our, you know, identities and experiences sort of intersect, right? And think about the ways that some identities are privileged, others are oppressed, right? And, uh, and use that as a, as a, as a learning uh, teaching tool. Yeah, for us, it was really important that we went beyond because um, I, I used to do this all the time in my introductions, right, with teachers, especially my grad student classes, we would do identity webs or we, you know, name like which are the top three groups that we belong to right now or ways that we self-identify that are really important to us in the moment. So for me, it was usually like I'm a teacher educator or I'm a writer because that's what was I was like working on in the moment. Now, like my new mom identity, it's like huge because it's taking a lot of my my mental capacity to do things. Um, but moving beyond that and saying, okay, this is how I self-identify, but how are these identities perceived by systems, by institutions? How do I react to them? Um, and really um, looking at the complexity of identity and systems and the way certain might be certain identities of privilege, others oppressed. So for me, I've been bringing up the fact that I'm a white presenting Latina. And as a white presenting Latina, I hold certain um, privilege in, in certain spaces. And what does that mean? And then most important, like, what am I doing about it? So it's like, I can't stay in the just, oh, this is the way I self-identify. It's like, I have to move and act on it, especially as an educator in these spaces. Um, I talk a lot about with children when I share my narrative of the moment I came from Chile to the US as um, I was undocumented with my mom and how I navigated spaces in school in Queens, New York, when I would get lost and like cry and have all these memories of trauma from my childhood of, of living undocumented and, and not seeing my family for several years. I now am a documented immigrant. And so I have to be aware of that change and how I navigate spaces differently than I used to before. And I can't forget that. And so for me, it's been really powerful to own that and to talk about it and um, to bring that up in my workshops with teachers in the book. We talk a lot about it, these examples from the beginning so that when we talk about our lessons, for example, we start with in chapter two using a digital text, um, looking at the artist Miguel and Miguel goes to um, Michoacan, Mexico for the first time. And he makes this comment about like people viewing him solely as a black artist. And here he was also connected with his like Mexican roots and visiting his family in Mexico mm -hmm. that he had never met. And so for us, that's very important to bring that up. And especially in conversations about um, Latinx identity and really um, been influenced a lot by the work of, of Jonathan Rosa too, and this thinking about um, what groups get left out by the Latinx term, 
right? And so mm-hmm. um, how leaving space for children to learn about these identity markers and so that they can self-identify and that we can be open to that and not put labels on them, right? And so if I have a student who wants to identify as a Black Latino or as an Af- Afro-Latina, um, and me as a white presenting Latina, I listen to that experience. I listen to their their um, their identity markers and I get to know more of that because that's not a space that I occupy and doing that deep listening work. So for me, intersectionality is at the core of the work that we do in understanding how systems work, but also in understanding that schools are systems and they reproduce a lot of inequities. Mm-hmm. So I need to know mm-hmm. how to do this differently. And that's why I was so moved in the whole writing process with Luce is that we constantly went back to what are the texts that we've selected? What are the activities that we've done? What's the internal work that we continue to do um, to make sure we center the experiences of these children and not ourselves? That is so beautiful. And I just want you to know, both of you, I'm definitely in my feelings and super proud of you, both of you. Um, I was proud when I watched your presentation with the Educator Collaborative. So if folks are listening, there is a session that Luz and Carla did with the Educator Collaborative Spring Gathering. So if you feel that you want to watch that, you definitely should. It was awesome. I learned a lot. Um, Definitely check out En Comunidad because it is for everyone, as both of them mentioned, as as I would like to reiterate. Um, There's so much that's powerful in there, but also so much of the work that is out there in teacher professional development centers white educators because they are the statistical majority. And what I love about this book as well is that it creates and holds a very special space for educators that are not white. So I would like to ask or invite each of you now to give a message, if you would, to um, any listeners that we have who might be bilingual, Portuguese, Spanish, whatever you want to do is fine. But if there's a special message for um, our bilingual educators that you would like to give them, um, that would be great. Yo puedo comenzar en español un poquito. El portugués no me sale, no lo sé. Eso se lo dejo a Lucía. Pero estos últimos días, bueno, no, días, meses. Yo no sé, no tengo concepto del tiempo como todos estamos en este tiempo. Pero esos, estos últimos meses, desde el, bueno, el año pasado he estado viviendo con mi familia. Mi papá y mi mamá están aquí conmigo en la casa. Y... Estos últimos eh, meses hemos estado contando muchas historias, bueno, porque tenemos mucho tiempo juntos. Y algo que me llamó mucho la atención últimamente es el hecho que mi mamá ha contado, como la mamá de, de Luces también eh, cuentista, eh, ha contado historias de la, del hecho que cuando ella era joven en Chile no tenía las oportunidades de, de ir al colegio como yo he tenido acá y que ella tampoco tuvo como acceso a los recursos debido a que, bueno, el, el patriarcado es bien fuerte, entonces a los hermanos de ella se le daba muchas más oportunidades. Y, y hemos estado pensando qué tipo de futuro queremos para mi niña, su nieta, que, que tiene, va a cumplir ocho meses esta semana. Entonces, para mí he estado pensando mucho en la influencia de nuestras familias, de nuestras culturas, del, del hecho que no estamos solo en este movimiento, así que le animo a todos aquellos que, que son bilingüe y multilingüe, que enseñan en español, que enseñan en inglés, les animo a que no continúen en este camino eh, solas, solos, porque es, este camino tenemos que hacerlo todo en comunidad, como dice el título del libro. Sé que están traduciendo mucho material, sé que hay mucha necesidad de recursos que les apoye, 
eh, pero les animo que se conecten con nosotras, que vean el, el sitio de red que se llama el Latinx en Kidlet, y que tienen muchos recursos ahí para libros también en español y en inglés. Hay varios que podemos compartir, pero en este momento tengo el corazón lleno de mucho agradecimiento, he estado muy emocionada estos últimos, eh, estas últimas semanas conversando con mis eh, amistades y, y todo en educación que son bilingües, porque sé que el, el trabajo es duro, pero agradecidas porque ustedes todos están en la lucha. Así que gracias. Wow, thank you so much for all of that, Luz. Um, so for me, I'm going to do this bilingually. Yeah, do it. I hope that's all right. So for me, yep. I think right now we're at a, an important, I hope, I really hope, turning point in history at the moment of this recording. And I hope that, um, you know, we can all really reflect on that. And I think for me, I've been spending so much time thinking about my own role and how I can contribute to this movement. I know that I can't be all the, all of the time in protests or in the front lines, but I know that I can contribute in other ways. Um, and one of the powerful ways is through education uh, and teacher education. Um, and so for teachers, educators that are listening, you know, I want you to think about your own role and how you can, um, how you can also contribute to the movement, right? To, to dismantling um, a racist educational system, which we all know exists. And um, really think about the ways that we ourselves are, are reproducing harmful narratives um, and, and, and do better, you know, do the work, do the work to, do, to do better every day. So yes, so un recuerdo que todos tenemos una voz en esta lucha. Todos tenemos una responsabilidad inmensa en esta lucha y tenemos que usar lo que, lo que tengamos you know, disponibles en, nuestro, en nuestras vidas con nuestra profesión. Um, tenemos, que, tenemos que trabajar juntos para, para, para seguir adelante y, bueno, um, no sé, tener un, un, un sistema de educación y un sistema de justicia que realmente es para todos. Muchas gracias. I'm so honored and definitely emotional just to hear you both um, fighting for people who are so disenfranchised by the school system. And I'm very worried about what has happened with distance learning mm. because I feel like so many of our students are being left out of the most important conversations that are being had about them. Mm. So excuse my getting emotional, but the work that you're doing is so important. Mm. So thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. And I'm excited that people will be able to hear this conversation. I encourage them to keep learning from you and to read En Comunidad and to reach out to us with questions. And thank you so, so much for your time today. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you, Julia. Thank you for this platform. Thank you for considering um, these issues, your questions were just so powerful for us to think through. And we're just thankful that we're not alone in this. You know, we reach out to you. We look at, we look at the work of Disrupt Text. We look at Book Love. We look at so, so many resources that are out there. And so for us, it's this constant unlearning and learning of better ways to do right by children, especially in these times, you know? So, um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We are truly in comunidad. Yes, yes, that's the only way to do it. I can't, I can't see any other way of, of moving forward. 
it's too much. Yeah. It's all too much to carry on by our, by ourselves, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I'm so honored to have been able to talk with both of you today. Um, we will be announcing this on Twitter as well, but we will be giving away some copies of En Comunidad for folks who are able to, um, to quote or cite specific parts that were meaningful for them. Um, or anything from the Ed Collab presentation that Luz and Carla did, or anything that you heard from the podcast, we will send you a copy of En Comunidad. We'll pick a few winners from those who were able to listen to the podcast. 